everyone. Welcome back to an all new episode of the 20% podcast, the podcast that brings you tips and tricks from industry professionals across all industries that you could implement in your current job today. I'm your host, Tyler Meckis. This week's guest is David Primer. David is the founder and chief sales scientist at Cerebral Selling. Much like myself, David studied the sciences in college, specifically obtaining a master's degree in chemical engineering prior to starting his career as a research scientist. Fast forwarding, he stumbled into sales as a solutions consultant and later contributed to four startups and five years at Salesforce. David truly is passionate about both the art and science of selling. And on today's episode, we discussed what is cerebral selling, how the customer buying experience is actually the product, how to efficiently use your solutions consultant, navigating the many variables in sales, learning how to learn, and much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with David Primer. David, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be with you, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yes, I am really excited about this interview. Uh, first and foremost, just because you're all about sales. Cerebral selling is really something I'm interested in after reading up and, and diving into it. But the most interesting part about your background is you studied chemistry and chemical engineering. So how do we get to sales? How, what is your story like? Is everything that we're going to jump into today? So, so first and foremost, David, take me back to early David, like, what were you like in high school? What did you want to do? What did you want to do with your life? Any early experience selling, even if it wasn't necessarily a sales position? Yeah, well, it's funny. You know, when you say that, the first thing that comes to mind is like my wife, who who didn't know me in high school, but early in university was like, yeah, he was, he was kind of nerdy, you know, and that's, you know, I love that about him. But no, like everyone else, like everyone has an origin story of how they got into sales because, you know, we were saying this before, we don't teach it in school. And so everyone gets into it by accident. And it's not something like your guidance counselor tells you you can do. And so I was no different. For me, like I was always like a science, math, engineering guy because I am curious. Like I just like to figure things out. And, and math and science and engineering is a great way of doing that and kind of being able to explain the world around you. And that's kind of like where I started. And like everyone who kind of goes into university, college, whatever program you're going into, it's like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I didn't have any visions of being a this or a that. I remember my father telling me back in the day, he said, you know, when you grow up, and I tell this to my kids now, like the job you're going to have hasn't even been created yet, right? Like there was no internet. There was no nothing like back in the day. You know, I got my first email address in first year university, you know, like this is what, you know, this is what it was back then. And so, so that's how we all get into sales by accident. So I started my career as a research scientist. I love figuring things out. And, and it's funny, like when you think about the transition going from like a, being in science engineering to what I do today or, or being a seller, you think, what, is a, what does a research scientist do, right? Like we, we try to learn things. We love to learn things. We love to figure things out. And then we try to explain what we've learned to other people so they can understand who aren't as close to the subject matter as we are. And in a way, like, is that not what we do in sales? Like our job is to figure things out, right? For hundred percent. I mean, to, and I, I'm going to ask you that. Well, I guess, yeah, my, what I, I view sales is like, you need to develop, you should be researching before you get onto any customer call. And if you are not doing your research, don't be in sales. Okay. Now maybe that's a little harsh, but it's really important to, to show up and actually do the research. But one of the other interesting things about the science background into sales is everybody knows here that I studied exercise science is you need to develop a hypothesis going into that sales call of what you're trying to discover before you go into it, right? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, look, you always should have a point of view. And I think that's actually one of the things that people miss. Actually, I, there's a lot of science. So I, I love like the science of selling. I love kind of getting into like the why, why does this tactic work? Why do they don't? 
And there was a study that came out a few years ago from a Gartner CEB, and they talked about this idea that the sales teams of the future are the ones that are going to be prescriptive, the ones that are going to come in and they're going to lead the customers to your point, like they have a hypothesis. I'm not saying, you know, they're not arrogant. They're not, you know, trying to, to lead the customers down a dark path, but it's more like, hey, look, I'm the doctor. Okay. Like you're coming to me or I'm coming to you. I'm the specialist. I see the stuff that you experience like all the time. Right. And I'd say, and you know, so I have a particular point of view. I'm not going to be arrogant. I want to sit back. I want to listen. I want to do good discovery. But at the end of the day, especially in the world of modern technology, which, you know, most of my clients are high growth B2B technology companies. I'm sure, you know, your, your experience is the same. It's like, we're in many ways, like splitting the atom for our customers, right? Like we're bringing new technologies they've never seen. They've never heard. They don't know how to evaluate it oftentimes, right? They don't know like the next steps or the questions they should be asking. That's our job, right? Is to lead them down that path. The example I give is like, if you went in, into like a, like a suit store and you don't buy suits very often, it would be good for you as the customer if the salesperson at the suit store said, hey, welcome, Tyler. You know, what, what are you looking for in terms of a suit? Like how often do you wear suits? What colors do you have in your wardrobe? And they would lead you down the path versus if you just came in and they said, Tyler, there's suits, go take a look, see what you like. Be like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I love this idea of, of having the hypothesis and being prescriptive and leading your customers through that process too, to number one, make the process easier for them and then ultimately reduce their level of regret when they do end up making a decision. Yeah, and, and this reminds me of, obviously I mentioned it, we talked to Takapone yesterday and, and he mentioned that the future of sales is sales professionals being the Sherpa for their customers. We need to be that guide. There is so much information. And, and one other thing about Todd too is, you know, every he quoted an article from like 1912, as you know, he does a sales <laughs> he <loves> podcast. <laughs> um, he was talking specifically um, about how in 1912, it was like, there's a lot more information out there that our customers have that it's going to hurt the sales profession. And that was, that was over a hundred years ago. And it, maybe it was less, but, but regardless, now we're in that same era of you know, most people say that, oh, you're 60% of the way through the sales process before they even talk to sales or everybody's heard something like that. But really, they're looking for that guide and we're looking for that person to, to help us move forward. And it sounds like you're, you know, you're, you're pretty much there as well. And I, I loved, you mentioned splitting the atom. I love the little science uh, knock there as well. So let's, let's dive into, into college. So you, you were interested in the sciences. You were curious. You'd love to learn, figure things out. Um, talking chemistry specifically, what skills in chemistry or what about chemistry is helping you in your sales career right now? Yeah, well, I'll tell you like, so the biggest thing, so in my undergrad, I did a degree in chemistry and atmospheric science. And as part of that degree, I did a lot of like math, science, engineering, all like chemistry, of course, but also um, weather stuff. And I actually ended up becoming a certified meteorologist, you know, let the jokes about forecast accuracy fly. But here's <laughs> the thing about, you know, why everyone wants to rag on like the weather people like, oh, they said it was going to rain and it didn't rain. And like, you know, like we, we always love to hate on the weather. But, but here's the thing about weather. And this actually, you know, gives you, a, I think it's a really good analogy for kind of the world of modern selling. Why is it so hard to predict the weather, right? Because we have computer models. Like we know where the wind's blowing, you know, how fast, like we just feed all of these variables into a computer model and it tells us like what's going to happen. Right. But the problem is each one of those little variables has so many um, small little margins of error right? Like the wind is kind of this, but it could be a little bit more, could a little bit less. And then this equation has a little bit more, a little bit less. And all the equations that actually govern the movement of synoptic forces in the environment actually have all these like little pieces of error that compound. So 
when you run a, a weather prediction model for a short period of time, like I want to know what the weather is this afternoon, pretty accurate. Like, you know, you, the app tells you when it's going to start raining. There's no reason why you couldn't run that model out for a week or a month or a year. But what's going to happen is all of those errors are just going to end up compounding. And what you're going to end up with is like a, something that doesn't even resemble what's actually going to happen. And so like, think about like the world of sales, right? Like you practice your pitch, you practice, you have your list of checklist of discovery questions, you know what a stage three opportunity is and all the information you need to collect. And then you go out into the world and I'm talking to Tyler and Tyler's my customer today. And Tyler had a rough night because he just had a baby and his, you know, his, his daughter was like up all night and his little baby son was like crying. And then he had a, an argument with his wife. And now I'm going toe to toe with Tyler and we're, we're talking sales stuff or we're negotiating a contract, right? That's a lot of variables that I was not anticipating. And there's a lot of margin and movement in air. And it's so, when you think about sales, there's all of these little teeny tiny margins of air, not just in like, in the words you use, the tone, the approach, where your customer's coming from, right? The position they have at their company, the argument that they had with their boss that morning. And that's, so you asked me the question of like, what do we take away from science that, you know, we, we can apply to sales? For me, that's one of the, bit, first of all, other than the curiosity and all the systems and all that kind of stuff, it's this idea that there's so many variables and margins of error in each of these little things that we, you know, that come to bear when we're trying to sell a customer that it, it, it becomes a thinking person's game to be able, a thinking person's profession to be able to kind of moderate your behavior as you learn things in real time. And that's, you know, one of the biggest, that's why I actually feel sales is so beautiful because it's just, it's so hard and it's so, there's so many variables and it's so complex and there's so much nuance and that's what makes it a thinking person's profession. But that's where I, I kind of draw that comparison. Wow, that that's incredible. And obviously, you were very heavy in the science side of things. And, and obviously, all those variables is pretty much like a math equation, right? Whether it's sales or whether it's, you know, the chemistry of balancing equations, which gives me a headache thinking about high school chemistry. But, um, <laughs> but going back, uh, going back to that, though, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of the science behind it. But to navigate all of those other variables is also an art. So the question to you is, do you see sales and you have to pick one or the other? Is sales more of an art or is sales more of a science? And it's okay. And, and even if you want to pick both of them, because I know <laughs> there has to be leaning one way or another, right? Well, you know, like at the end of the day, everything is, is all science. Like there's reasons why, you know, chemical synapses in your brain that make you do something. But I, I draw the line at a certain point. And I do say it's, it's, it's both, but neither is the most important. I say like, yes, you know, uh, the, the science of when you use these words, these words can be persuasive and these words can be, you know, create this emotional connection and be impactful. But the art comes in sometimes even the tone, the approach, like, am I speaking softly? Am I speaking more loudly? Am I leaning into the camera? Do you believe that I love what I do? Do you believe that I'm telling the truth? And in that way, you know, I could tell you, hey, look, you know, Tyler, if you want to get people to believe that you're telling truth, use these words, lean in, speak with conviction. But there's like, you can't just do that. Like if you could just do everything that you understood the science behind, then, you know, like we'd all be millionaires and have six pack abs, right? Like right. the reality is there, there's a lot of variability. The more important thing that I kind of talk about is like, I talk about like the why, meaning it doesn't matter, you know, if it's science or it's art. It's like, you just still need to understand if that tactic that you used worked or didn't, or you won the deal or you lost the deal, you need to figure out why and understand like, what was the combination 
of the art and science. And, oh, you know, and I think when I said it like this, I kind of lost them. And like, if you can pick up on that, then you are going to be in a great position to continue doing the sales behaviors that are bringing you success and then stopping the ones that are, that are not. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people miss is that, that why. Yeah. A hundred percent. I feel like there's not a lot of people and I got in the soapbox as well as like sale sales is a profession and you need to go back and, and reflect on the things that you did and watch, you know, like, do you think Tom Brady doesn't watch his game film to try to get better for himself? For me, that same reflection point to, to the same point that you mentioned is we need to see what we're doing and what we're not working and continue to iterate. I don't know anybody who goes into something with one single plan or, or what is it? Mike Tyson, like everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? It's so important. Any thoughts there? Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, here's the, the tricky thing, right? Like in sales, you're going to lose most of the time. Like that's, you know, it's like a, a batter in baseball. You're not going to hit the ball most of the time. Three for 10 and, is still Hall of Fame worthy, right? Excellent. That's right. And, and sometimes when you don't make the sale, you won't know, know why, right? Because the, the, the reason why was because, oh, your customer's CEO sits on the board with the CEO of some other company whose product is a competitor to yours. But like, you'll never know that, like, because no one's going to tell you, it's not going to really filter their way to you. So but the whole thing is like, it's not possible to know in 100% of the circumstances, but certainly, you know, with enough pattern recognition, and this actually comes down to this topic I love to, to talk about around emotional intelligence, right? Being able to, you know, sense feelings in yourself and other people and then respond appropriately to them versus being reactionary. You know, some of the worst salespeople are the ones that are just tone deaf, right? Customers are giving them the, the no buy signals. I want to get off the phone with you. And they're just not reading the room. Right. And so part of the solution is the pattern recognition. Like you can actually learn to be good at sales. You can learn emotional intelligence through this process of understanding that pattern recognition. And I'd say like in instances where you have not been successful in a particular opportunity or, you know, an era of sale, you know, a particular era, a portion of your sales motion, part of it is just, you know, piecing together that pattern recognition of like, okay, you know what? I think this is, this, here's my hypothesis around why I lost this deal when you don't have that direct feedback. And then you have to go in there and change all of those variables and then rerun your assessment next time, right? Oh, I love this. Yeah. I love this. And you don't know what, you know, if you say something, how somebody else is going to react, you know? Oh, there's so many, sorry, so many terrible chemistry lines here. Well, no, um, but you know what? I, but I think as far as these variables go, like there's big variables and then there's little, little variable. Like there's variables that like, let's say, for example, if you execute them more consistently, you're going to guarantee yourself a greater chance of sales success versus like some are like, some are minute, like people, for example, they talk about negotiating. Like, how can I, you know, for example, if I'm able to save an extra 5% or 2% on my deals by giving away less revenue, then ultimately I can do better. But in a way, like I would say, like, that's great. That, like I said, you should be so lucky. Like you should be so lucky as to have a negotiation problem because most problems that salespeople face are much earlier in the sales cycle when it just comes to describing what the heck it is that they do and getting their customer to lean in and say, tell me more. So if you figure out like a secret formula that works for that upfront part of the sales cycle, those are the kinds of behaviors, those pathways that you want to keep replicating and, and spamming, I say, in the best possible way over and over to set yourself up for success more consistently later on in the sales process. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this just reminded me, this is the exact reason why I started this podcast is I want to focus, it sounds like you want to focus on those big variables, controlling the controllables, but controlling that 20% of variables that are going to make up the large majority of what you're actually focusing on, the Pareto principle, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, mm. That's where I started the show, the 20% podcast. I want to learn 
that information that makes up the big difference and makes up the success, makes you successful and my guests. So that same information, but the, the 20% is that same principle relies so much in life everywhere. And to your point with the, you know, with the variables, you can't control every single one, but if you control that 80%, if you could have that 80%, that's a lot of what you need to know. So, um, so shout out to one of my college professors who actually uh, gave me that, you know, he used to tell us, learn the 80% of information or learn the 20% of information that's going to make up 80% of what you need to know about that topic. And that's exactly where that whole compass comes. So, um, so I just wanted to, to share that. I think that that was, was really important. Um, cool. So, okay. So you studied chemical engineering, you got, you got your master's in chemical engineering, and then you went into the, did you, did you go directly into sales consulting then, or was there any other steps in between that jump? No, that was it. Like, so, so coming out of chemical engineering, I was actually recruited by IBM to, to be a solutions consultant. So shout out to all the, the SCs and solution engineers out there um, and ended up getting a job offer eight months before I graduated. And then a few weeks before I was supposed to start my job, I threw a complete random set of occurrences, ended up connecting with another young man. I was 25 at the time. So connected with another guy. He was like 26, 27. He was uh, an early guy at a startup at the time. Now keep in mind, this is like dot com 1999, 2000. So everyone was, you know, starting these companies. And uh, I ended up meeting with some of the folks at the startup and, and said, Hey, you know what? Like, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a young guy. I'm not married. I have no attachments. They're like, well, I'll take a, I'll take a shot. I'll give up the job at IBM and do this startup gig instead. And like, it's, that was like, you know, what, what you, whatever the ESPN turning point in the game, that decision to join a startup. Now I did join as a sales a solutions consultant. So like a functional technical product expert, but the company itself, we, so we were an enterprise workforce management software company. We were uh, 20 people at the time. Uh, and as an SC, like there was a few of us, we were like, the Navy SEALs. Like we did the custom coding for the demos. We, we did the documentation for the product. We did some training. And of course, you know, you know, it did some selling, you know, with the AEs. Um, and, and I absolutely, it was a great transition, by the way. And I, I actually think it's one of those, I've written about this in the past. It's a transition that a lot of people don't think about to get into sales because everyone thinks, oh, I got to be like an SDR and make like a hundred calls a day. Right. But, but being like an SC can be a tremendous way of getting into sales because it's like, it's the best of all worlds. It's like, you're on the sales team and you have a quota, but you're not responsible for like the crazy deal at the end of the day. You can get behind enemy lines. You know, like you, you have a title that doesn't necessarily scream, you know, I'm in sales and you can be in all parts of the organization, product, engineering, sales. So that's kind of how that all came about. And, and I actually spent the first eight years of my career um, in, in SC and, and SC leadership roles, you know, ran, ran the team there. And, and this little company um, that was 20 people, we grew it to 700 people. And a hundred million dollar business. We uh, go, we did an IPO a few years into the business. We got acquired, so we we ran like the whole gamut of things that you could experience, you know, in in your software sales career. And uh, absolutely, that's where I fell in love with sales and and just went on from there. So before we jump into that further, do you ever regret that uh, that IBM position, or do you think it was more important to get all of that experience? And I have some some thoughts on that as well. Oh yeah, like a thousand percent. No, I do not regret it. And and my advice, like I'm a startup booster, meaning like I advocate anyone going into a startup role because you'll learn so much, you'll get so much exposure to like how all different parts of the business. And I'm not saying, hey, look, you shouldn't go to a big company. Right, right, right. Um, I worked at Salesforce after for five years after they acquired my third startup, and I loved my Salesforce experience. Can't say enough about it. 
but like, I feel like if you're not doing a startup, especially if you're in, you know, in sales and you want to feel what it feels like to be in the bear pit, selling something that's new and innovative, doesn't have the recognition or marketing air cover that, you know, a bigger company would have, you'll learn a crap ton uh, working at a startup. Yeah. Oh, and that's so fantastic. And, and that's, you know, obviously my, the first three years of my career, I worked at a, a 3000 employee company, $2 billion revenue um, selling it. I was an it reseller, right? That was, that experience was really great for the fact that I learned so much about sales and the foundation and they had so much great, they had a great onboarding process and a great learning and development. So I really got to learn a lot and had some really great mentors while I was there. But over time, I started to feel like just more of like a cog in the wheel, right? It's just somebody who's reliable and could hit their number. And you know, Tyler's going to usually land somewhere between, you know, 125 or 150%, like just be reliable. But looking back now, obviously you had spent some time at Vidyard and at Dooley. I love the, the smaller company so much more because of being able to have that cross-functionality work, being able to work in those different departments. Like right now with Dooley, I'm doing some voiceovers for some of our little micro content. I'm going to help do some podcasting stuff. I'm working with customer success and sales. So I sit right in between them right now. So I have experience there. My background in data allows me to go talk to the data folks in the, in the product teams so that I could distill down some of that product data to the sales team so that we can have those actionable insights to this group. So being able to pull all of that experience and, and be almost like a centralized hub to everybody around you is just so exciting. And, and I, I have ambitions of going into leadership later on, but I have no doubt that this experience is going to set me up to, to have, you know, be very well-rounded as a leader. Any thought, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, like I, you know, I, I love this idea of, of being well-rounded because I love everything I learned in the high growth bear pit environments, like where the cost of failure is very high working at these startups, right? But I also learned a ton at Salesforce seeing how kind of the sales machine was built operationally and culturally at scale. Things like when you have thousands of sales reps, you get to see things that you don't get to see when you have 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, 50 sales reps, right? So uh, I'm grateful for both. Um, you know, I, I've spent more of my career at startups just because for me personally, I, I loved building and I love to figure things out, right? But it's funny, you know, some, I remember like I had this kind of this dichotomy, my startup friends went after I was at Salesforce, I was like, no, like you should totally go check out sales. Salesforce is great, like big companies in general, great places to learn as well. And they were like, nah, no, nah, I would never go there. It's, it's too corporate, right? And then you would go to like, in, at Salesforce, I would say, hey, look, you know, to my reps, I'm like, you all should check out maybe working at a startup. And they're like, oh, no, 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 like I, I could never work at a startup. It's too risky, too risky, right? Like, oh. but you know, for, for me, you need both. I think it also depends on like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what do you want to do in your career? Right, there's a place for everyone. Yeah, oh, that that's so scary. And I, I love the building and figure, figuring things out part. I feel like that's still another, you know, another asset of your your STEM experience. But just on the, on the startup point, before we jump dive or dive in a little further, um, just talked to Bilal the other day as well. And he mentioned that he was, I don't know if you saw this clip or not, but he mentioned he was a Lego kid growing up and he loved being able to build and start that stuff. And he said, now I'm just, now working with startups and growing startups is just adult Legos, right? Yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same, absolutely. And I'm a big fan of Todd, Bilal, like, you, you know, these are some of my favorite people, uh, but it, it's exactly the same thing. It's like, it's building up and figuring out like what you need, what you don't. And also like, you're also building something as you go, not knowing what the final thing is going to look like, right? Or building the plane while it flies, right? Yeah. And maybe it's not a plane. Maybe it's a train at the end of the day. Like you don't know. Right. And so 
I, I always like appreciated that agility. In a way, it's kind of funny, right? Because like, you know, we're in sales where the, the cost of failure is high. We're on the tip of the spear as far as the company goes, because like revenue is important and solves all problems. We're also like on the treadmill. I love all the memes. I follow like the sales humor and the corporate bros and all that kind of stuff, right? Because everything that they say is true. And I, I remember, you know, being at Salesforce um, where our fiscal year started in Feb 1. So like we were always a month offset. So at the end of October, um, it was always quarter end, like Q3 quarter end. And so imagine you're, you're, you're a parent, it's Halloween every single year, you know, and you're going out trick-or-treating with your kids, uh, with your, you know, with your phone on you, with your headset on, talking to reps <laughs> on the West Coast that haven't closed out the time yet. And it's like, in a way, it's, it, it is exciting and fun and amazing. On the other hand, you're like on a treadmill and it's very hard to get off the treadmill. Um, and so I, you know, it, it, it's almost one of those things that you wish you didn't love so much, right? You, like the, the thrill of being in sales. Why can't we just have normal lives like everyone else, Tyler? But no, like we've chosen this profession that is deliberately hard, that is changing so fast. You know, I say like, why is sales so hard? It's not like, you know, medicine, I'm not going off on medicine, but I'm like, okay, like medicine has changes, but I reckon it does not change as quickly as like the buying behaviors of, of people uh, in a pandemic or, you know, in, in, in a period where like social media takes over, which is relatively new in the, in the, in the chronology and history, you know, Todd will go back, you know, a hundred years or there's no, there was no social media, you know, back then things have evolved so much and so quickly. So in sales, like if you don't love to learn, right, if you don't love the agility, if you don't love the thrill that comes with acquiring new knowledge and insights and, and growth, especially if you're working at a high technology company where, you know, you're bringing the future to people, you're not going to be happy. Like you have to want this. And if you want it, then you're going to love it, right? If you don't, then it's going to be like a grind and take years off your life. Wow. Oh my goodness. There's so many different things to, to jump into there. The, <laughs> the one, the one thought I know we're, we're harping on Todd here, but um, he, the, you, you mentioned that there was no social media back then. He's actually working. He told me yesterday, he's working on something now where, you know, there was no LinkedIn top sales influencers back in the day, but he's actually going to go and, and do, if there was one over the past hundred years, who those influencers would be in sales <laughs> over time. And it's uh, I'm really excited to check that out. I think it's, it's unique. It's, you know, but to your point, it's what Todd loves to do. And I think just being able to find your passion and knowing what you do um, is, is an absolute game changer. Now, um, before we jump off of this solution consulting point, uh, really just want to discuss, you mentioned that you, they're able to go in, they're not as salesy and, and you could probably knock down some of the walls of your buyers. What's the importance of being strategically leveraging your solutions engineer, say you're a, uh, an account executive or an account manager, or even an SDR bringing them into an early call? What should, what should reps be focusing on or, or how could they best leverage a solutions engineer to get some of those answers that they may not have asked themselves? For sure. Well, I'll tell you, like the first thing that comes to mind is, is how not to leverage your sales engineer, which is like, you should not be using a sales engineer to have them go in and give the customer the regular demo, right? Like if you, all you're doing is you're bringing in the SC to do the regular, then you should just have that as a video on your website that people could just watch, right? The purpose of an SC is to come in and to help you tailor the narrative to the customer, right? And so you can absolutely use them to help tailor that narrative. You know, depending on how high up you go in a, let's say, an enterprise selling environment, the superpower of an enterprise sales rep is actually not to know the product, right? If you're selling to SMB for small, smaller market, yes, you need to know the product a little bit. And a lot of smaller market um, 
know, AEs also do their own kind of solutions consulting work. But the higher you go, being able to call on that SE to be that real kind of solution architect to kind of put that solution together for the customer, super important. So being able to kind of just even consult internally, like to develop that point of view that we talked about, like you're the doctor, this is like my doctor's, you know, uh, assistant or, or co, you know, co-doctor colleague, they need to be able to come in and help you kind of craft that vision for the customer. The other thing is, you know, again, because they often don't have the title, it's not like, oh, I'm a solutions consultant, like that could be anything, right? Where you want to use them strategically as well is being able to connect with other people within the customer's organization that maybe you can't get to. And actually, this is a tactic I talk about on, uh, I have a, a whole video about it on how to get past gatekeepers. And one of the things is if I'm like, let's say I'm, I'm talking to you and like you're, you're blocking me, right? One of the tactics I talk about is being able to orchestrate a meeting between people that are not me and not you that can't happen between me and you to move the deal forward. So for example, I might call in an SC to say, hey, look, you know, as a next step, one of our clients really appreciate is like having our solutions team come in and actually work with your frontline managers or work with, you know, this person or that person to help construct a solution. It will be involved, but I like, it would be great to get these other people involved. And by doing that, I kind of get around you, right? And I bring in a special guest star and that special guest star could be an SE, it could be a customer success person, it could be an engineer, whatever it is, I'm going to get a special guest star from my side to talk to the special guest star on your side. And that's a great way of leveraging SEs as that special guest star. And I realized, you know, many years later that the AEs that I used to work at back in my first company, which was big, that was a big enterprise sale. So the sales cycles were like nine to 12 months or more. You know, we were doing, you know, million dollar deals with, you know, banks and airlines and manufacturing organizations. And I was young. I was enthusiastic. I love the product. I love to code. I love to explain things. And my AEs would like throw me behind enemy. I didn't even realize what was happening. They would throw me behind enemy. Go talk to Judy in payroll because, uh, you know, she'll, she'll give you a statement. She'll give you some good, good examples to like, you know, uh, uh, put this demo together. I didn't even realize what they were doing. Right, but they, your SE can absolutely help you get behind enemy lines. The 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 thing that I would also, if I can just take a step back here and talk about, we're talking about SEs for a second. One of the things that I found over the course of my sales career. So when I started as an SE, I was like very technical, very detailed, very like love the product. But part of the superpower that you need to have, I'd say, as an AE or SE or anyone in sales, is to be able to kind of take a step back, because your customers don't give a shit about your product. They don't give a shit about your quota, right? Or your, your stupid platform or whatever the hell it is you're selling, right? They only care about one thing, which is solving their problem. And that's what they should focus on, right? And so I would say, whether you're an AE or an SC, like lead with the problem, lead with like the, here's what your life is gonna be like afterwards. And I actually found over the course of my career, as I moved into higher levels of management and I got farther away from the product, I actually, in a way, became better at sales because I wasn't encumbered by the details of like what it did, nor did I even know all the details of what it did, right? I was at one with the problem, right? At one with the challenges my customers were experiencing and how they could solve those challenges on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'd say like that, so I'd say that's a great tip for anyone from a, a sales or sales leadership perspective, just to kind of keep in mind, it's like, take a step back, focus on their problems. It doesn't really matter what your platform does, but also a great way of leveraging SCs as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I feel like there's way too many reps, whether it's customer success or AEs or BDRs, really just get focused on the, the product battles back and forth of features, back and forth. This is what we do. This is what we do. And also some of the demos are, are just more 
harbor tours, right? Of, of trying to say every single thing that we could do that we could help, but really you just need to, to focus on, you know, I tell every single person, you know, at Dooley or whoever I'm talking to, you need to know that exact pain or that exact problem that you're actually trying to solve for. What's the most important thing? And there's a number of different ways that you could ask those questions, not please don't ask what keeps you up at night. Cause I would just tell you my, you know, my, my six week old or, or no, three weeks old, mm-hmm. um, but you know what, it's just, it's just really so, so important. So, um, so thank you so much for that. Now, diving into your career a little bit further, obviously you have the solutions consulting um, experience. Uh, you move over to HCM, you're still doing some of that. And then you move into sales operations. And then you also, you know, at your next company, Ripple, you start head of product and customer success. What's the importance or maybe what's the biggest lesson in being well-rounded and what, why, why should somebody try to gain as much experience as they can? Yeah, like I think being well-rounded makes you more valuable uh, to your customers when you're talking to them, right? Because if all your focus is on like, oh, selling, 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 but not really appreciating, look at the end of the, there's actually this concept I talk about, which a lot of, you know, a lot of senior execs at companies and customers will understand. I call it the messaging supply chain. What, is it, what does this mean? As a salesperson, you go into your sales cycle, you're talking to the customer and the customer says, what does your product do? And you tell them all that kind of stuff and, and you make the sale. Then they transition the customer to the customer success team. Customer success team comes in and they say to the customer, all right, we're here to like, you know, unshrink wrap the product and get it going for you. Uh, and uh, the customer says, all right, well, sales told us that your product can do A, B, and C. And, and CS is like, what? That, that's what they told you? No, 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 we, we don't do that, right? And now the messaging supply chain is broken. And I'm not saying sales is wrong. In fact, oftentimes as an SC, we got very uh, forward thinking and creative with the product in ways that were totally valid and logical in ways it could work that, that, that the, the CS team hadn't implemented yet. And that was okay. But if we're not on the same page, if we don't understand what different parts of the organization are doing and saying, then we're going to be out of sync. And I would say the same thing, even to like to engineers, like oftentimes, you know, uh, there was a, a challenge that we would often find at, at our companies which is I call almost like the enterpriseification of our product roadmap. So imagine you have a company and you have a whole bunch of customers and you have like a couple of really big enterprise customers that are brand names everyone knows. And then you have like dozens and dozens of like regular, you know, Joe's bait and tackle that no one's ever heard of, but like are fantastic customers that drive your business forward. What can sometimes happen is that the engineers start focusing on some of these like larger customers as like, that's the prototype that we need to be thinking about and developing and engineering our products for. Meanwhile, all of the, and they have much different requirements than everyone else, right? All that's to say is that it's really important for everyone at the company to really understand what everyone else is doing, what they're focused on, the challenges they experience. So we have a little bit more empathy for each other, but also like I am a better seller when I understand the pains and challenges that CS experiences, because it actually helps me set the expectations better with my customers. It helps them see me as someone who is there to help them, right? Rather than just make the sale. Um, and, and again, like, what do we want in sales? We want them to not only sign on the dotted line, we want them to call us back, right? And if they see us as young, new, you know, just out for the money, uh, going through the motions, low conviction salespeople, that's not someone you want to talk to again. So the roundedness plays into all of that. Yeah. And it's really so crucial. Like maybe back in the day, like, you know, when, when maybe software was more perpetual, you could just have that, Hey, I'm going to go and, you know, sell this license and then not really work, you know, 
wash your hands of the customer. But, you know, obviously one of the biggest things, shout out to, to Dooley's customer success team, it's, you know, customer success is one of the, the most important groups in the company because they need to make sure that they are, that you're executing on all levels. They, they know what the customers are, are doing. They see the first, firsthand the problems that a lot of these customers are facing. And it's their responsibility to help with the renewal side of things too. They need to, they, they help with the, you know, with um, just keeping that customer happy and excited. The sale used to be the finish line, but now I think the sale is just the beginning, right? If you want to keep that customer and you want to maintain it over time, um, I think that those groups are crucial. So I think it's really essential that you have that experience and, and you could also, you know, you could lean in, like you mentioned before and say, hey, I completely understand. I was a solutions engineer before and I understand where these problems are. That's just not going to wall down right there. And that, that's another le level of trust. It's something that a lot of salespeople don't have essentially, right? Absolutely. Oh yeah. Like look, being able to kind of, you know, tell the future, should bring the future to your customers and say, okay, here's what the rest of the experience is going to look like is very important. But, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that, that, that is kind of wrapped up in what we're talking about here in sales, like we're usually the first people in our organization that the customer speaks to. And in many ways that creates this, a bit, a bit of like this audition mindset, you know, meaning if they have a good experience with us, then it, they feel that they're going to have a good experience with the rest of the organization, right? If I'm talking to a salesperson, and by the way, like I've, I've, I run this uh, sales leadership meetup and, you know, I've been at these dinner tables where a whole bunch of sales leaders around the table talking about technology. I actually wrote an article about this on my website where you have all these sales leaders talking about technologies. I'm not going to name the technology. I'm not going to name the company, but there's this one segment of sales stack technology where there's only like a few major vendors that are playing in it. And one of the reps, one of the sales leaders, one of the VP said like, hey, are you, are you guys looking at, you know, this other vendor? Um, and they said, we were, but then, oh my gosh, we were talking to this rep from that vendor and they were the worst. And then the, then the VP starts saying, oh, was it, you know, was it Tyler from Dooley? And, and they're like, like, yes, it was. And then all of a sudden, like wildfire, this negative sentiment about this vendor spreads around the room, nothing to do with their technology or customers, but just the negative experience that the customer had with you. I was actually doing a, a keynote talk at a sales kickoff, you know, a month or so ago for a customer where, where the whole focus of the talk was creating an amazing experience on the sales side. Cause at the end of the day, the experience is the product. And if the 100%. customer has a yeah, they have bad experience with you, they're just going to assume that the rest of the experience of working with your organization is going to be like that. And by the way, even if your product is amazing and well differentiated, your customer doesn't give a shit. Like they, they only know like a fraction of a percent of the goodness of what you can do in the sales cycle, right? So in a world where so many different products and so many different salespeople just sound the same, like, oh, like we're a platform and we do this, like, oh, like doesn't Dooley do that? Well, you know, Dooley does this and we're a little bit different. Like no one cares. So the way that you end up differentiating yourself a great deal is on the buying experience, the experience the customer has with you on the sales side transcends the product even that you're selling, the solution that you're selling. A million percent. It could solve any of your main problems, but if you're not having that great experience, it, it's going to leave a sour taste in your mouth. And that's one of the favorite things about actually working with Dooley and with the product specifically. One of the biggest issues, and it was something that we talked about before, is really having, you know, obviously you, were, you worked on the, the solutions consultant side of things. There's one of the biggest problems that we see with a lot of customers is not having a smooth handoff or having to, to reduplicate those same questions. And to the doctor point before, you know, I did a post on it yesterday, you know, 
you would never trust a doctor who will come in and make and ask you those same questions over and over that you just that they should know the answer to. So understanding we should not be, you know, as an account manager, I should not be going in and asking what their pain is. I should be crystal clear of knowing what that is. So I love the the fact that, you know, one of the biggest problems that we solve with Dooley is helping with um, the transitions back and forth between rep to rep so that in order so that we could have that smooth customer experience, right? There, there's some that, you know, in the past I've run into situations where you may not have that smooth transition and then you run into a churn. And the reason you had the churn was because people were fed up with having to, you know, here's the carousel again, right? Having that same question, all it comes down to is the, is the ability to service your customers and have a, a customer experience that's not just focused on the, the seller, right? There's so many sales reps who are focused on what's our process in order to get a deal across the line. And we're not focusing enough on what does the actual customer need and trying to meet somewhere in the middle and, and being that Sherpa that, you know, that Todd mentioned to help navigate those waters and say, hey, I, you know, I have been through this storm before and I know exactly how to get us through it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that's, that's fantastic. But, you know, I would say, look, it goes both ways, too. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to cut all the salespeople out of this. Like, for example, um, you know, customer says, uh, like, I call you up and you're like, hey, Tyler, like this all, you know, and you're like, hey, David, yeah, this all sounds good. Um, I'm kind of busy. How about this, David? Can you send some information over and, you know, I'll take a look at it and I'll get back to you and I'll let you know. And on one hand, okay, if we were just being completely customer centric, we would be like, sure, whatever you want, customer. Like, I'm happy to get you whatever you want, right? But at the same time, I need to be protective of like my time and resources. And I know I've, I've been on some awesome um, call coaching sessions with B, some really amazing BDRs who will say things like, you know, hey, Tyler, like totally get it. I, I want to get you the pricing. I'm happy to, you know, I'm happy to do that. Here's the thing. Like typically when a customer just asks for pricing or proposal and I just send it over like 95% of the time, I never hear from them again. Right. And it's okay. Like if you're saying it, just be polite. Like I get it. You know, but um, but I want to help you. Uh, but if but if if you are interested in the help, then I'm happy to continue the conversation. And what I would recommend is, and then I can be prescriptive about the next step. I'm going to send you something, but like let's get on a call for me to review it with you. And I'm not going to send it to you by the way until you get on the call with me. But it's okay to be as a salesperson like prescriptive in the best interest of the customer because sometimes, and actually quite a bit, I actually talk about this in my negotiate in my objection handling training. If I ask Tyler out on a date, okay? And Tyler doesn't want to go with me, right? I'm like, hey, Tyler, hey, so what's going on? Why don't we, uh, I got tickets to the uh, the Leafs game on Saturday night. Like, do you want to, you want to go? Now you don't want to go with me. What do you say? What do you say, Tyler? What would I, what would I say if I yeah. didn't want to go? Yeah. Uh, I got something going on. Oh, you got something going on. I look, I understand, man. Like you're a busy guy and I know I'm springing this on you at the last second. And really what you want to tell me is I don't want to go with you. But the words that come out of your mouth are, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really busy on Saturday night. And that leads me as a salesperson. It's like when a customer says it's too expensive, right? It's like, too, what the hell does that mean? Too expensive could mean anything, right? And it usually doesn't mean that I don't have the money to pay for this, which would be like the definition of like, it's too expensive. So, so oftentimes in sales, like it behooves us to be prescript like to understand how these sales cycles typically go so that we can architect them in the best interest of the customer because if you don't want to go to the day with me i don't want to keep calling you and inviting you out thinking i got a chance right right i would rather say hey look tyler man i'm gonna let you off the hook here if you don't want to go out with me like that's okay i don't want you to spare my feelings and i might say that 
as an educated thing, because I know that most of the time when people just say they don't want to go out with me, it's really, or they're busy, it's because they don't want to go out with me. So I would say for you, if you're on the sales side, is that again, we come back to this pattern recognition. It's like trying to figure out like, what are your best practice sales cycles look like uh, that are both in the best interest of you and the customer and take the steps that will help you architect that sales process. So it's in the best interest of everyone. Yeah, absolutely. What it comes down to is just getting to the truth as quickly as you can, because it's if, if it's not, if I don't want to spend more time on this deal, if it's going to be a dead loss, then I could go try to find another one in that meantime. And, and there's way too much checking in, circling up, following up, you know, whatever, whatever the case is, right. You need to make sure that, you know, get in a position where you, you make sure that the customer can say no, or they can opt out. And if you make them that comfortable, then they will, you know, we're more likely to, you know, to take that door instead of just string you along. Now, now I know we're, we're getting pretty close to time. I want to wrap a little further, or as we continue to wrap up, I want to learn a little bit more about cerebral, cerebral selling, right? Founder, chief sales scientist, what do you, why do you do it besides focusing on science, empathy, and execution? How does that help in sales? I mean, look, you know, like everyone, like I love sales, right? Uh, I love sales. I also love to buy things, but I realize that people hate talking to salespeople. And so many salespeople out there go out and they execute their sales motion in a way that feels forced. You know, they're running a script that someone else told them to say, they're making their 50 calls a day, and they feel sometimes a little gross, a little gross about what they're being asked to do. When selling is the most, you know, I'm a big fan of Dan Pink's to sell as human, Selling is the most human thing like we can do, right? And so my mission is to help people be really, really good at sales, but do it in a very authentic, very human, very high conviction way that doesn't make them feel gross, that is in the best interest of their customer. And, and, and the way to do that is through the, the, what I believe is like the education focus, right? But if you understand why the tactics work, if you understand why they don't, if you have an appreciation for, you know, kind of modern selling, empathetic selling, then you will be, A, you will be successful. B, you will also move our profession, this profession that we all love forward. Because every time you go out there and you execute an old, shitty, schlocky, outdated tactic that pisses your customers off, you not only lose the deal, you ruin sales, for everyone, <laughs> right? So that's my mission is to kind of like pull back, help people perform at their best from a sales perspective uh, by just falling back on these principles of science and empathy. Oh, that is so amazing. And that aligns very directly with my mission as I know we were talking about before of really making sales, not just that used car salesman, saleswoman, right? We Sales skills are essential to life. And we need to not pull salespeople through the, uh, the weeds we need to educate salespeople. We need to develop sales education with other, with people at an early age because no matter what you're doing, you know, as I mentioned before, it's like no matter what, you need to sell yourself on that first interview when you're going into a job out of college. And if nothing else, you you may not get that interview unless you were able to network effectively with somebody else. Those are just two simple sales motions that are uh, essential, right? So I couldn't be more with you and we need to, you know, stand on the rooftop and, and, and just preach the importance of that as well. David, this has been so fantastic. Two questions I love to ask all of my guests as we continue to wrap up here. Number one, you mentioned that you are a, a parent. What's your best piece of parenting advice? <laughs> oh, it's funny. Cause I was thinking uh, the reverse. I had the best, the, the best piece of advice. So, okay. So I'll, I'll give you two. So one is, is the best piece of advice for parents. One, I guess would be with the reverse. Um, I always tell my kids, it's actually in the foreword of my book in my, you know, when I dedicate my book, 
I, I said, you know, the number one thing I tell my kids, and if you called one of my kids here and said, what does your dad tell you to do? I said, you have to learn how to learn. That's the most important skill, right? Being able to assimilate new knowledge, being able to like to incorporate new ways of thinking and new ideas. Like if you don't do that, you're going to be a dinosaur in two seconds. So, so like when I think about my career, whether it was, you know, how to build my own website, how to code, how to do this, whatever it was, like I had to teach myself how to do it and develop a system for learning how to learn. Um, you know, on the reverse, I'll give you, here's a piece of advice that I give my, my, my kids in terms of their own execution. And this is very relevant to sales. So there's a concept I, I refer to in my, my practice called experience asymmetry. And this is what happens when a younger, less experienced or newer salesperson tries to connect with an older, more experienced buyer whose job they've never done. Okay. And what happens is, and I heard this, like I heard, I hear this on the phone all the time at Salesforce. What happens is the fear the trepidation manifests in your voice. And I can tell that you're nervous about going toe to toe with me. And so for example, my kids, so my daughter is on the volleyball team in her high school. She'll come up to me and, and, and she comes up to me like a week or so ago. She's got like a 6.30 a.m. volleyball practice that she hasn't told anyone about, but she needs a lift to school early in the morning. And she knocks on my door and she's like, um, so, so dad, I'm like, I'm already defensive that you're going to hit me up for something that I'm going to say no to. Like that's, that's the vibe that you're giving, <laughs> giving me right now. And I say to my kids, like, you got to stamp that out. You got to like, come with like your confident suggestion, your question, whatever it is, because your body language is going to start putting people, you know, on the defensive. So there, there's a, there's my kind of my reverse tactic. From, from parenting perspective. Yeah, you need you need to talk at the level of the person that you're talking with and talk with that conviction and talk with that confidence as well. So final question, David, if you were teaching a college 101 class based upon all of your previous life and work experience, what would you teach and why? Oh, wow. Um, you know, like I, I actually, I like the, like just kind of the foundations of, of, of persuasive communication. You know, I think in sales, a lot of it, people sometimes describe it as like transferring enthusiasm, you know, the conviction, what I realized over the course of time, you know, in hindsight is that things that I was passionate or conviction had conviction about didn't, didn't matter what it was, a, a cause, a, a band, a gadget, whatever it was, I was able to manifest this authentic, natural conviction, but it takes a little while till you recognize the patterns of how that conviction manifests in your tone and your speech and how you kind of present yourself and how you present your content. So for me, um, it's almost the simplest thing because when I, if I were to say, Tyler, tell me something you're passionate about, right? And, and, and you would just go off and, and I would believe you, right? Because it's true. But the second I give you a, a new product in your hand that you don't know anything about, that you're not passionate about, I can also tell, right? So I would probably teach a course on like the kind of the science of manifesting that confidence and conviction because it's so foundational. It doesn't even, you may not even be, you could be selling your ideas. You could be an engineer selling your ideas at a all company meeting, you can tell whether or not I believe in what I'm saying and doing. So I, I would love to teach a course on that. Yeah, absolutely. I would absolutely take that as well. David, thank you so much, man. Where can people learn more about you and everything you have going on? Yeah, I mean, so look, I've been accused of giving away too much stuff for free uh, on my channel. So uh, cerebralselling.com, which is my website. I have a YouTube channel by the same name. I also have a Facebook group called The Sales Lab where I do weekly live uh, mini trainings on all sorts of topics. So if you just look it up, the sales lab on Facebook, you can find me there. And my book, which you can get wherever you get books, Amazon or whatever, uh, is called Sell the Way You Buy. And uh, it's on audiobook as well. David, thank you so much. My pleasure, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great.
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And if you enjoyed the show, it would mean the absolute world if you went to Apple and rated and reviewed the show for me as well, is this is a fantastic way to help grow the show and help to bring in fantastic guests and even more listeners to our tribe. So stay tuned for next episode and have a fantastic rest of your day.